Welcome to NVC Life. I'm Rochelle Lamb, veteran NVC trainer and relationship coach, helping listeners navigate interpersonal conflict and ground more deeply into relational living. Greetings, fellow humans. When people come to one of my workshops in nonviolent communication, I find that a good many of people have never heard of nonviolent communication or heard of Marshall Rosenberg's work. And so what I include in the handouts is an excerpt from the book, Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Life. And I include the excerpt that begins on page one of the book. And I'm going to share that with you now because it's, it's both short and concise, and it includes a lot of very valuable information about nonviolent communication. So here it is in Marshall Rosenberg's words, believing that it is our nature to enjoy giving and receiving in a compassionate nature. I have been preoccupied most of my life with two questions. What happens to disconnect us from our compassionate nature, leading us to behave violently and exploitatively? And conversely, what allows some people to stay connected to their compassionate nature under even the most trying circumstances. My preoccupation with these questions began in childhood around the summer of 1943 when our family moved to Detroit, Michigan. The second week after we arrived, a race war erupted over an incident at a public park. More than 40 people were killed in the next few days. Our neighborhood was situated in the center of the violence and we spent three days locked in the house. When the race riot ended and school began, I discovered that a name could be as dangerous as any skin color. When the teacher called my name during attendance, two boys glared at me and hissed, Are you a kike? I'd never heard the word before and didn't know some people use it in a derogatory way to refer to Jews. After school, the same two boys were waiting for me. They threw me to the ground and kicked and beat me. Since that summer in 1943, I have been examining the two questions I mentioned. What empowers us, for example, to stay connected to our compassionate nature, even under the worst circumstances? I'm thinking of people like Eddie Hillison, who remained compassionate even while subjugated to the grotesque conditions of a German concentration camp. As she wrote in her journal at the time, I am not easily frightened. Not because I am brave, but because I know that I am dealing with human beings and that I must try as hard as I can to understand everything that anyone ever does. And that was the real import of this morning. Not that a disgruntled young Gestapo officer yelled at me, but that I felt no indignation, rather a real compassion and would have liked to ask, did you have a very unhappy childhood? Has your girlfriend let you down? Yes, he looked harassed and driven, sullen and weak. I should have liked to start treating him there and then, for I know that pitiful young men like that are dangerous as soon as they are let loose on mankind. Eddie Hillison in Eddie, A Diary, 1941-1943. That is the opening to the book, Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Life. And I'm going to repeat the questions. What happens to disconnect us from our compassionate nature, 
leading us to behave violently and exploitatively. The other question is, what allows some people to stay connected to their compassionate nature, even under the most trying circumstances? I find it very useful to read this to folks out loud in workshops because it points to, in my opinion, it points to the essence of nonviolent communication. And what Marshall Rosenberg highlights in what Eddie Hillison is saying is this, I know I am dealing with human beings and that I must try as hard as I can to understand everything that anyone ever does. And then Eddie goes on to say, and that was the real import of this morning, not that a disgruntled young Gestapo officer yelled at me, but that I felt no indignation, rather a real compassion. And so what is it that brings a person to view the world through that kind of lens, where the person doesn't feel indignation, but rather compassion? They recognize that where that person is coming from, they're coming from a place of suffering and pain, even while they are inflicting suffering and pain on others. That's so hard to be able to do. And it may well be that there's a part of us that fights back against that because we might think, well, am I not letting that person get away with something if I don't react in a hostile way? If I don't meet that person's hostility with my own hostility, am I not enabling them in some way? So I think people can recognize the challenge that this often presents. Does it mean that when we are compassionate, we are enabling another person? I think in the situation here that we're seeing outlined by Eddie Hillison, that that is not what's going on. Rather, it means that she has an acute awareness of her circumstances, and she believes the officer's circumstances. She recognizes that they are both human beings who are caught by a set of circumstances, and they're extremely uh, dehumanizing. There's nothing right about it, and yet this is what is occurring. I really appreciate that she says that she felt no indignation. How often is it that someone says something that we don't like, whether it's someone who's close to us or someone on social media or a politician, someone at work, where we don't respond in that indignant way, but rather remain open, have some curiosity about where that's coming from, and not move into a place of rigidity within ourselves. Pretty hard thing to do, and yet so important to do. Another reason why I find it useful to share this piece is because I think it's not uncommon for people to come to any kind of workshop, whether it's a personal development or communication conflict resolution, where they have an idea that if only I get this particular training, then I'll be able to address all of the problems I encounter very effectively. I'll be very satisfied with all of my interactions. I will not suffer in the way that I'm suffering now. And while it's very true to say that having some skills does help a person navigate really tricky, challenging terrains, it doesn't automatically guarantee the end of suffering. 
because suffering is simply part of life. But this is not to say that I would not encourage people to get conflict resolution training and communication training. I think it's enormously helpful. I just don't think it's fair to expect results from a communication model that it can't actually deliver. In this particular piece that I read about Eddie Hillison and the Gestapo officer, things do not turn out well for Eddie. Eddie dies in that concentration camp. And that's important to recognize. But what's different here is that even though she dies in those horrible circumstances, she retains her humanity. And that to me is what is so important that even as really challenging people show up in our lives or challenging situations and circumstances show up in our lives, can we retain our own humanity? One way I've often said it is never let another person's less than admirable behavior justify your own. Never let another person's less than admirable behavior justify your own, which is a place that we so easily go to. I don't know about you, but it takes a lot of uh, work. It takes a lot of vigilance. It takes a lot of discipline to stay on a track where you don't get seduced by the desire to get back at someone or teach someone a lesson, that kind of thing. Instead, to say, well, I would prefer at the end of the day to have considered my actions and my words at the very least kind and compassionate. Now, I do want to point out here that kindness and compassion doesn't mean that the other person regards what you're saying as kind and compassionate. Sometimes it's not the case. Sometimes in order to express one's boundary, for instance, there's a necessity to say something or confront the other person with their own behavior, which I view as distinctly different. The other person might say things like, and I've, <laughs> I've heard this before from many people, Sometimes a person might say something like, hey, you're not practicing empathy. You're not practicing nonviolent communication. And what they mean is since I don't like what you're saying and I don't feel comforted in your presence, then that means you're not practicing what you claim to be practicing. Something like that. But that is not always the case. It's not often the case. It simply means that you're maintaining your integrity you hold something as having value. And if you're really practicing nonviolent communication, what you're standing for at that moment is also something that holds the needs of everyone in consideration. So it's not about you getting your way. It's about you establishing something that is both important and life-serving in the service of life. That could be, for instance, if you are an activist and you're you're speaking on behalf of animals or wildlife that cannot protect themselves. It doesn't mean that the person who wants to go in and do some mining, uh, for instance, or build a dam is going to like what you're saying when you express your need to care for all of life. But to express oneself using nonviolent communication is to state that you're considering all life important and you have some concerns about what it will mean if certain plans are carried out without considering the bigger picture. So I hope that makes sense uh, because this can be applied to smaller interpersonal 
challenges that you might have with a partner or with a child, etc. And so this particular opening to the chapter, I think is very grounding and it does help us to really consider the questions that Marshall is asking. What happens to disconnect us from our compassionate nature, leading us to behave violently and exploitatively? And what allows some people to stay connected to their compassionate nature under even the most trying circumstances? Now, for those of you who've read the book, you know that Marshall goes into quite a bit of detail talking about how our social structures and our education have a lot to do with how you answer these questions. We recognize that, in fact, we're taught to be violent, to behave violently or behave exploitatively. But we can adopt a different way, a more natural, I believe, and life-serving way of being in the world and being with each other in the world. So I'm going to end right there with that. And I hope you will hold these questions close to your heart. I will include a link to the first chapter if you'd like to read the whole chapter, which is available on nonviolentcommunication.com website. And uh, you can go and have a look at that. Until the next episode, be well. Thank you for tuning into NBC Life. For future episodes, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. For free resources or to book a private session with me, head over to rochellelam.com. Until the next time, stay sane, grateful, and generous. Thank you.